the University of Illinois will require vaccines for in-person students. Pet anxiety spikes as owners return to work. More on these stories, I'm Kelsey Watsonauer. I'm Sierra Henry. And this is Lee Enterprises Long Story Short. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Long Story Short, where we recap Central Illinois news from Lee Enterprises journalists. We've got a pretty stacked pod this afternoon, and um, we're just going to jump right into it because we've got a lot to get through and a lot of really great stories, and not a lot of them are related to COVID. So cheers to that. <laughs> uh, first up, we got some local government news coming out of McLean County, and Kelsey's going to give us the rundown on this $5.4 million wind farm. So so check it out. The McLean County Zoning Board of Appeals this week voted 7-0 to approve a new plan for a wind farm in the southeast corner of the county. The plan includes 64 new turbines reaching 590 feet tall and will go before the full county board for approval in the coming weeks. Sapphire Skywind Energy submitted proposals for the project in May at an estimate of $5.4 million. If approved by the full county board, the wind farm would span more than 14,000 acres in in Bellflower and West townships. Once built, the 250-megawatt farm would power about 80,000 homes annually. For more information about this project and its history, check out reporter Kate Heather's story at panagraph.com. Uh, this week, during a Mattoon City Council planning session, council members set their sights on further developing sports tourism, which generates a significant portion of the city's $50 million tourism industry. 20 years ago, the city developed new baseball and softball fields, but other municipalities have since caught up to them, and now some council members want to see the city further prioritize its sports facilities to prepare for the next generation. The planning session was held Monday for the city council to draft its top list of priorities in the coming years. Among bolstering sports and other forms of tourism, economic development, housing development, maintaining or increasing police force, updating liquor codes and other ordinances, and pursuing a city manager form of government were identified as priorities. Rob Stroud gives the full rundown on these goals and more, so if you're curious about the future of Mattoon, head on over to jg-tc.com and get the full scoop. And now in Macon County, uh, Kelsey's going to tell us about the Decatur City Council meeting, which we will talk about twice in this podcast. So Kelsey, take it away. Also on Monday night, the Decatur City Council will discuss its plan for how it will spend an allotment of $16.9 million in American Rescue Plan stimulus funds. For the most part, the City Council accepted City Manager Scott Wrighton's recommendation to spend $9 million on three high-priority water and sewer projects, $4 million to replace lost 2020 tax revenue, $2 million for housing under the city's neighborhood revitalization initiative, and $1 million on broadband expansion. This discussion, however, was largely intertwined with policing issues brought brought to the attention of the council by several concerned citizens. Many council members recognized the potential for some of the stimulus funds earmarked for neighborhood revitalization could have a positive impact on crime rates. But in the short term, one councilman, David Horn, argued funds should be spent on enhancing community violence prevention programs. This is a long and complicated story, one that we will be getting into later in the podcast, as Sierra said, as it touches on some public safety issues as well. But for the full story on stimulus funds and other Decatur City Council coverage, read Brendan Moore's story at herald-review.com. And now let's move into some health news. We are returning to a little bit of COVID news this time, but uh, take it away, Sierra. 
one, uh, just one piece of COVID news. Um, the McLean County health officials are urging those who have not yet received a COVID vaccine to consider getting vaccinated as additional cases of the Delta COVID-19 variant have been confirmed in the area. Roditis Laboratories announced this week two additional strains of the Indian double mutant variant of the virus that had been found in a random sampling of 369 COVID-19 test samples. The variant cases were confirmed from a person who lived in central Illinois, officials said. The variant is the most contagious yet and could lead to a rise in COVID cases. It is especially dangerous for those who are unvaccinated, health reporter Lindsay Jones reported this week. There have been 84 confirmed cases of the Delta variant in Illinois, which was first confirmed in the U.S. on April 3rd and hit the Bloomington normal area in late May. To read more on what this could mean for the health of the community, find Lindsay Jones' story at panagraph.com. Central Illinois Friends this week announced a new clinic that will offer free mobile sexually transmitted infection and HIV testing in the area through the help of the Illinois Department of Public Health. The clinic is a partnership between the Peoria-based nonprofit and Community Healthcare Clinic and Carl Broman Medical Center. Central Illinois Friends will offer their services out of the CHCC's office in Normal on alternating Friday afternoons. Other free services offered through the new clinic are HPV vaccinations, meningitis vaccinations, as well as sexual health counseling and education, and support services for transgender people. For a full schedule and to learn more about the new services being offered, be sure to find Lindsay Jones's report at panagraph.com. Sierra, let's go into some education news. The free summer food service program is returning to Decatur, offering free meals for any child under 18 through July 30th. The program is offered through the Decatur Park District and the Illinois State Board of Education. The Park District and the Children's Museum of Illinois will also provide free mobile STEAM programs. The Park District and the Children's Museum of Illinois will also provide free mobile STEAM programs following lunch on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Park leaders will be in nine neighborhood parks during the lunch hours each week, each day with games and activities. To find out where the closest free lunch is to you, be sure to check out Donette Beckett's story at herald-review.com where she gives the full rundown. Kelsey, what's going on with the masks? After community members spoke out against masks during recent school board meetings, reporter Lenore Sabota and I talked to administrators from McLean County Unit 5 and Bloomington District 87 to see how they were handling the issue. Despite the state entering Phase 5 of its COVID-19 reopening plan, masks are still required in K-12 school settings. School officials said their hands are really tied on this issue since the Illinois State Board of Education makes the rules under the guidance of the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. No changes to ISPE protocol have has been announced, which means for now, students can expect to head back to school with their faces covered this fall. For more on the issue and to hear from schools and the parents speaking against it, be sure to find our reporting at panagraph.com. And now to move into some sports slash kind of education news. We're going to keep this on one thing. The University of Illinois announced this week all students who plan to study in person at any of its three campuses this fall will be required to get the COVID-19 vaccine. That came about a week after athletic director Josh Whitman said the vaccine would be encouraged but not required for student-athletes. The university has since said those who are not vaccinated will get some wiggle room, Herald and Review reporter James Boyd wrote. Unvaccinated students will have to follow campus-specific guidelines and any exemption protocols issued by each school. So it turns out all students doesn't quite mean all students, but student-athletes will be expected to follow the same rules as non-athletes. For the full story, you can find James' reporting at herald-review.com. 
New changes are underway at Wolf Creek Golf Club after the 43-year-old semi-private 18-hole golf course changed over to new ownership this year. Or last year, I guess, because it happened in December. Brian Sullivan and his nephew Tyler Mills and Ryan McGuckin have taken over the course, which is located north of Pontiac. The course was built by the late Peter Scully, a Dwight landowner and businessman who passed away in 2012, and the golf course was later ran by his family. Recently, the clubhouse has gotten new signing on the outside, as well as new wooden lockers, wood shelving for the clubhouse, and locker room benches and ball washers. Despite the changes, the new owners are maintaining affordable rates for customers at $32 for golf and car rentals during the week and $36 on the weekend. Uh, there's a lot going on these days, but to read the full story on how these new owners came to be, check out Jim Benson's story at Panagraph.com. Kelsey's going to start us off with some courts-related news in our public, public safety section, so Kelsey... What is going on at State Farm? Dr. Carla Campbell-Jackson, a normal resident and the first vice president of the Bloomington Normal NAACP branch, is considering legal action against State Farm, she said this week. Campbell-Jackson filed a charge against the insurance giant in 2016 with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, alleging Title VII civil rights violations. She said those violations involved racism, discrimination, and retaliation during her time as a State Farm employee. A State Farm spokeswoman said the allegations did not align with the company's values, but neither party would give details about what exactly those allegations were. The EEOC ruled this month the charge had reasonable cause, and after conciliation efforts failed, the agency gave Campbell Jackson notice of a right to sue. She has not explicitly said whether or not she's going to sue, but she's weighing her options. Documentation has been very limited on this case, given the EEOC's outright denial of my Freedom of Information Act request. But if you want to read more and see what Campbell Jackson said about the charge, be sure to head on over to Panagraph.com and find my report. Okay, we're back in Decatur uh, to hear more about what happened at the Decatur City Council meeting. Uh, Spouses of Decatur police officers are pleading with city officials to address issues within the agency amid growing levels of violence. At least a dozen spouses attended the Decatur City Council meeting on Monday in response to a man who was arrested after firing a handgun at Decatur Police Department squad cars. After firing a handgun at a Decatur Police Department squad car, the spouses demanded the council increase staffing levels at the agency as well as harsher sentences for violent offenders and greater displays of support for its police officers. Four of the spouses spoke during the council meeting urging the city to reach an agreement on the on a new contract with the police union representing the city's cops who have been working without a contract since January 2020. Folks, there's a lot to this story and we're not going to be able to summarize this in a very succinct way. Brendan goes into further detail about the growing violence indicator as well as their recently passed landmark police reform legislation, which ends cash bail and mandates all officers to wear body cameras by 2025. If you're interested in reading more, I highly recommend finding his story at harold-review.com. Mattoon native and Eastern Illinois University alumnus Ed Ward was shot to death Sunday morning in what police described as a random incident, reporter Rob Stroud wrote this week. The Minneapolis Star Tribune wrote that Jason R. Beckman, 45, of Duluth, Minnesota, is facing felony charges for shooting Ward, who is 68, after crashing a stolen vehicle in Ward's front yard. Stroud goes into detail about Ward and his time spent growing up in Mattoon and how he earned his education at Eastern Illinois University. You can find Rob's full story at jg-tc.com. Now let's move into some lighter community news. Sierra, take it away. 
The family of Nancy Easterschick, a lifelong Charleston resident who dedicated her life to recording the history of the area, has donated hundreds of files to the Coles County Genealogical Society dating back to the gold rush. Nancy has spent... Nancy had spent years working on these archives, documenting and researching the Charleston Mattoon area. She even wrote a book about it all titled Round the Square, and she was involved in every historical organization in the area. A large portion of her massive archive is actually dedicated to Abraham Lincoln, whom she shared an ancestor with. This is a really neat story um, going into the background of a fascinating woman who has really documented history and Charleston and the surrounding area. So if you want to read more about Nancy's life, her work, and how to find her archives, head on over to jg-tc.com and check out Athena Pyre's story. Um, Kelsey and I are also going to talk about a couple other stories that we've written. Yeah. One story that we wrote together and another story that uh, we wrote with our um, Bloomington reporter Tim Eggert. First, we're going to talk about um, pet anxiety. Uh, in case you didn't know, our pets are not down with us returning to work in the office. And actually, it's caused a lot of stress and anxiety in dogs in particular. Cats have been fine for the most part because they're very territorial. But some of them have also been a little anxious, but not, not as many from what I was told by a vet. But anyways... I spoke I spoke last week with a and it was in this week's newspaper a woman and her um, family who are dealing with their 10 year old uh, chocolate pit bull uh, or chocolate lab pit bull who is dealing with some severe separation anxiety after her owners return to work and I just this dog she had never she had never destroyed anything in her life aside from when she was a puppy of course and she chewed through two heavy metal doorknobs and escaped her front door like chewed through the deadbolt and everything all because like she was so anxious that her owners would return back to work and she like she's since had to be put on like some medication she's also doing pheromone work and like other little changes to her routine but that's all stuff that we got into in the story and Kelsey might touch on it a little bit and more, but it's just, you know, our pets, they're very anxious, you know, and we gotta, we gotta make sure that we're taking care of them as we're heading back to our, our desks. Uh, yeah, I talked to a animal behavior specialist who talked about things you can do to help, uh, help your pet during this transition, because they already had to transition so much when so many of their owners, uh, started working from home, and now they need to, need to work back into spending time alone again, especially those pets who were adopted during the pandemic. They've never been alone, probably. So just working with them a little bit at a time. You should definitely check out the story to hear from Dr. Valerie Farmer-Dugan. Uh, she had some good stuff to say about how to make sure your your pets are okay, because as she said, they, they care about us. They miss us. Even cats, <laughs> they really miss us when we're not there. So um, yeah, just do what you can to make sure your cats are chill, your dogs are chill, they're all chill. And if you can't, get a fish. <laughs> you can find our full story on pet anxiety 
and how to deal with it and um, tips and tricks for preventing um, pet anxiety such as you know preparing your pets to go before you go back to work months in advance and working with them on on your routines aside from doing it all at once all of that and more plus videos and photos are available at pandagraph.com and then we have I know this is big for us huge even we have another piece of um, community news which is it's Pride Month, and this weekend kicks off Pride Fest in downtown Bloomington. Um, Tim Edgar, our Bloomington reporter, Kelsey, and I have been working so, so hard on a huge feature on Pride Month, profiling seven community leaders in politics, community activism and advocacy and education about what they've done in the LGBTQ community, um, what pride means to them, and just talking about all of these major milestones because, you know, LGBTQ issues are still very much not talked about enough. And as you read through our stories, which are going to be coming out this Sun, this Saturday, this Saturday, the day of um, Pride Fest, you will find that many of our community leaders say that there is still so much work to do, especially for our transgender and non-binary, gender non-conforming um, groups who face large amounts of violence and a very high suicide rates. You pass that to me on a cheery note, my guy. Um, yeah, we worked very hard on these. Uh, it was really interesting to hear the stories from these people that Telling, telling us the stories of their lives, kind of, uh, the kind of people they looked up to, and trying to be role models for other people, and honestly, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, <laughs> I was also going to point out that um, it, the stories, uh, they are coming out on Saturday, which is the anniversary, the 8th, 7th, 2013, which is the 8th anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling in favor of same-sex ma- marriage and uh, a lot of the people we talk to have worked with advocacy as Sierra said and know how important that fight has been especially like um, one woman I talked to talked about when she crossed state lines having to have powers of attorney with her in case something happened to her or her wife so yeah it was really interesting to hear some of the some of the history and all of the progress um what is yet to come for the LGBTQ community right here at home in Bloomington Normal. It's very nice. It's also been 40 years since the first reports of HIV and AIDS were documented, which has been huge. As we know, HIV um, and AIDS, well, it was first reported as AIDS, um, which is an advanced stage of HIV, um, which really kind of decimated the gay community in San Francisco and other metropolitan areas and local communities as well but it was just huge and um this year or actually in the last couple months the Illinois has gotten really close to decriminalizing HIV the um Senate and the House have passed a bill uh decriminalizing HIV and the governor is expected to sign it though he has not yet Um, They've also done a lot of work uh, to include LGBTQ uh, sexual health education in um, sex ed in Illinois, and that bill is also heading toward the governor in 
it soon soon um also pride fest is is saturday well it actually starts tonight at um 4 p.m uh with some musical performances at the bistro which we've talked with um jan lancaster also known as mama by the bar patrons she's uh owned the bistro for 25 no she's owned the bar for nearly 30 years and that is just huge so that bar has been here through all through hiv and aids crises the pandemic um all of the ups and downs when normal and Bloomington first rejected ordinances to protect um to protect sexual orientation and not um non yeah they rejected um non-discrimination yeah they rejected non-discrimination clauses for sexual orientation which were later adopted like just a couple years after that and then the state adopted it and also just all these major milestones uh, the bistro has been there for it all um we have videos with every person that we profile too uh we're very excited it's, it's a huge month um i also wanted to say when you're talking about uh hiv and aids part of um that being such an ep- epidemic in the gay community was the government not paying attention to it not uh, honestly not caring about this community so it's part of the reason it's so important for us to do these kinds of stories to uh, raise up these voices who are working so hard in this community and making sure that these people are seen as people these people are cared for and their protections are important and uh, at every level of government so um, I feel like that shouldn't be what we end on. We should end on what you just said, but maybe that could be worked in earlier <laughs> in the edit. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to do it for us today, folks. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast and our reporting, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. While you're at it, head on over to panagraph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com to look at subscription information and consider supporting hashtag local journalism. Happy Pride! Woohoo!